How's everybody doing this morning? Good, good to see you guys. Thank you for joining us online. Um, before we get started, I do want to say um, welcome back to some of you that I haven't seen in a while because of illnesses and COVID. I'm glad to have you guys back here. And um, also welcome those of you online who are usually here, but you're now you're battling whether being exposed or sick. And if you look around the room again, um, I personally know of four families that, whether through illness or something else or COVID, are not here with us this morning. And they said be watching online, uh, but just they're they're playing it safe, whether it's they are sick or trying not to spread it's because of an exposure. So pray for people that you don't see here. Um, and throughout the week, something I've learned is if someone ever pops on your mind randomly, someone you haven't thought of in a long time, but they just popped on your mind, give them a call. I'm a strong believer that God does that all the time. And most of the time when I do that, someone says, oh, I'm so glad you called. I just needed to talk to someone about this, or this is what's going on in my life. It never fails. So if someone pops in your mind, or you look around, you don't see someone here today, shoot them a text. Let them know you're praying for them, thinking about them. Um, call them. So just keep, keep people in your prayers and on your mind, especially if you don't see them. I do think God works in amazing ways when he puts people on your hearts. So let's pray this morning. God, I thank you so much for today. I thank you that we get to gather, we get to celebrate, and we get to continue our uh, series on beginnings in uh, the book of Genesis. God, and I pray that today as we unpack um, covenants and your covenant with us, God, that we, uh, we have a deeper understanding of what it means to be in a covenant with you and um, what a blessing it is that we get to be in this unbreakable covenant that you have with us, God. So I pray that uh, you teach us something new. We invite you here today and we welcome uh, just whatever it is that you're going to say to us through this message. We thank you, we love you, and everybody said? Amen. Amen. All right, so as we get ready, you can turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. I'm actually going to wrap up our beginnings uh, series today with um, another question. We've asked some good questions, I think, you know, the past few weeks. We've asked, why am I here? We've asked, who am I? What, what am I supposed to do? And um, last week, we asked the fun one, what's my problem? What is my problem? And I'm sure, again, even when we ask that, we can, add, we can start answering it lotsly for other, mostly for other people, right? What's my problem? I will tell you what your problem is. But we got to look at ourselves and what is our problem? What's my problem in, in this sin that we fall into? And we talked about the fall, but how the fall was the beginning of this amazing redemption love story that Jesus has for us. So today we're going we're gonna to keep going with another question. And we're going to talk about Abraham. But before I get to the question, um, I'm going to tell you a story first. But um, Abraham is referred to as the father of our faith, and for good reason, as we'll see today. Why is he referred to as the father of our faith? And as we talk about it, as you turn your Bibles, I want to tell you a story about a pretty, pretty awesome covenant that I'm a part of. When I first met my wife, first met my wife, we were both in college. I was a sophomore, she was a freshman. We met at Sacramento State University, and we were both part of a, a group called InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. This was kind of like a, a church group on campus. They would have, it's funny, I say varsity, and people think, a sports thing? No, not a sports thing, but inner varsity Christian fellowship, and we would have small groups throughout the week, and then um, on Thursday nights, we'd have our large group meeting. It was like our church service on campus. There was you know, a band and a speaker, and it's when all the small groups would come together. It was a lot of fun. So uh, I remember on campus, when I was working with inner varsity, my first year there, uh, Stephanie wasn't in college yet, but my second year there, I joined the leadership team. And we had what's called Rush Week. And if, you're, if you were in a fraternity or a sorority, you know what Rush Week is. They have all the booths set up. They've got people trying to get new pledges to join. Well, in our varsity, we weren't a, a fraternity or a sorority or anything, but we had a booth during Rush Week. And um, we would be right in the middle of some different fraternities. Uh, one year, total side note, we were right next to the Muslim group, and it was really cool to get to talk to them and share that space with them and um, have really good conversations. But, but we're there. And I remember seeing Stephanie walk up to the booth for the first time. It's where I first met her. She walked up to the booth, and she signed up for a small group, and it happened to be the small group that I was leading. 
And I remember when I saw her, I thought, wow, this is a, this is a pretty girl. But I had a girlfriend. And it never went past the thought of, this is, a, this is an attractive woman. She seems fun. She also had a boyfriend. She did not reciprocate the attractive, he looks like a fun guy feelings in any way, shape, or form. So we had small groups. And Stephanie lovingly offered up her room, her dorm room, her and her roommate, for all of us in our small group to meet. And there was a group of 10 or 11 of us, but we would meet. And very quickly, I mean, it was obvious to her and other people, but not to me, she did not like me. And I don't mean like, not even romantically, like there was no, I do not like him thoughts coming towards me. And I was oblivious, I thought she was just a fun person. But we were in other relationships, and the entire first year, we would meet in her room, and I was my normal self, talking fast, outgoing, sarcastic, amazing sense of humor. <laughs> I thought I was good looking. But, you know, maybe not. But I thought I was a fun guy. Stephanie had the opposite thoughts. She would openly tell people he's loud, he's annoying, he never leaves. <laughs> I didn't live in the dorms, but I was always hanging out in the dorms. Had a lot of friends there, and she wanted me out. She probably even had the thought, I can't wait till next year when he's not my Bible study leader. But I thought we were friends. The next year, something changed. That next year, we both found ourselves single at the start of the next school year, and she had joined InterVarsity leadership as well. We didn't lead a Bible study together, but we found ourselves hanging out, whether it was leadership meetings or different things. We found ourselves hanging out all the time. And we went to a thing called Fall Conference where we started, it's a whole bunch of intervarsities from different colleges, but all get together and have a big weekend conference. I found myself wanting to hang out with Stephanie all the time. And I felt like I was getting the same feeling back. She was wanting to hang out with me all the time. And when I left that conference, I knew I really like this girl. This is, this is not just a, a thing anymore, like, like a, she's fun. Like I really, I was having feelings for her. Then, sure enough, I found out through just hanging out, she had the same feelings for me. But it was really cool. We found ourselves hanging out a lot and a lot, and eventually we were dating without even realizing we were dating. It just turned into, people started asking us, are you guys dating? And we had to ask each other, I, I think we are. Wait, we're, we're doing everything together. We were like, I have to go to Costco. You want to come? Yeah, let's go. We go to Costco. What a date, right? But, but we were doing it all the time. That dating relationship, years later, turned into a much deeper relationship and eventually turned into the covenant that I'm in with her now. Coming up on 14 years in March. I remember standing at the altar saying, saying vows to, to Stephanie. For better or for worse, for poor, for poor, for poor, for poor, for poor. <laughs> she knew I was going to work in ministry, so she was not marrying me for my money. I knew that going into it. But in sickness and in health. But we call this the covenant of marriage. And many of us in this room are, have entered into this covenant of marriage with somebody. But I know that I echoed the words of Beyonce. I liked it. I put a ring on it. Right? I wanted to keep her around. I don't know exactly how I tricked her into saying yes. And my family made that very clear when they first met her. Dustin, we don't know what you made her drink, what you made her eat, why she loves you the way she does. But never let her go because if you do, you're out and she's in. That's the ongoing story of our relationship, right? But all I can say is, I guess I found favor with God, and he softened her heart for me, and she'll tell people the same thing. Go, so what changed from this annoying guy that you wanted out of your room? She'll say, God changed me, because I didn't change me. But she'll say, God changed her. 
but I'll take it. Whatever it was, I'll take it. Now, I, I know because you're smart people, the, the marriage relationship all throughout Scripture was designed and created by God. And it was designed to model the kind of relationship that he wants with us. God and the church, he, he wants this relationship, this depth of commitment. It doesn't just come from saying something, though. It comes through a covenant. It comes through an agreement, a very, very deep agreement. And there is no shortcut for a commitment outside of covenant. A covenant is the only real way to have a relationship with God. We're going to talk a lot about covenants today, but I think a covenant is the only real way to enter into this deep, unbreakable relationship with God. As far as I, I can tell in Scripture, when I look through and I read different stories of people in Scripture, a lot of people have, have these deep covenants with God, and the ones that have these amazing relationships with them, they enter into these, these covenants. Sorry about that. That was probably me. If you're looking to connect with God, that is, to be a part of what he's doing in the world, you've got to connect with him through something deeper than just talking to him every now and then. It's a covenant relationship that we enter into with God. So the question that we're going to unpack today is this. How can, it be, how can I be a part of what God is doing? If we go back to the beginning and we see where we're from, why we were created, what about the fall, how does this, how does this work with us, the next thing is then how do I get to be a part of this? Looking at Genesis, what does it say about entering into a covenant with God, and how does that change our walk with him moving forward? So I'm glad that everyone's here today. In fact, if you don't know much about Scripture, I think you're, you're really going to understand, and we can unpack some fun fundamentals about a covenant with God today. If you're um, here online, or if you're here and you're just kind of still investigating this, this claim of Christ, I still think even people in that mindset want their life to matter. There's a, there's a longing for I want to have a, a deeper purpose, and I think this really helps unpack that purpose of having a relationship with him. The fastest track to significance is to be a part of something bigger than yourself, right? All the people that have made huge impacts in the world became of something much larger than any one person can do on their own. And when we enter into a covenant with God, we're entering into that something that is so much bigger than you, so much bigger than us, and that's what makes it so special. And how can we do that better? To partner with God, and his agenda for this world. And that's something that sounds attractive, partnering with God and, and working with him, then we're gonna have a conversation about it today. But before we move forward, let's, let's define a couple terms that you're gonna hear a lot of today. And the first one is that first word, covenant. Um, many of you may be familiar with the term covenant in the context of marriage, but, but you'll also hear covenants all throughout scripture. There are some major covenants God makes with people that still pull through. We're gonna get to look at a lot of those today. But the Bible is divided into two parts. We have the Old Testament and the New Testament. Testament and covenant um, actually can be inter intertwined, and, and the words can mean the same thing, an old covenant and a new covenant. The old covenant, the Ten Commandments brought down by Moses from Mount Sinai, the new covenant, specifically the blood of Jesus. And so unpacking these today, I want to get ahead of ourselves, but a covenant in the ancient world was this. It was an unbreakable agreement between two parties. Look at that, an, an unbreakable between agreement between two parties. It's kind of like that contract that you sign, right? If you've ever bought a house, you had to enter into that unbreakable agreement, right? If you don't pay your bills, bad things will happen. You will lose a lot of things. It's a contract, but this was way bigger. A covenant is bigger than a promise or a handshake. This was a binding contract. In ancient world, in the ancient world, uh, terms of covenant, this was not a negotiation. Like today, we actually get to negotiate terms on things. When businesses get together, they get to talk and, and come to agreement on this is how it's going to work. This is what you get. This is what I get. In the ancient world, when a covenant was made, it was all done with the person in a higher authority. They would come down and say, these are my terms. You can take it or leave it. There's no negotiating. This is what the terms are. So 
And typically the person with the greater power, the greater authority, the greater presence, they get to make the terms of the covenant. So when it comes to a covenant with God, guess who makes the terms? It's real quiet. You should all know this answer, right? (laughs) God makes these terms. We don't get to negotiate, well, God, maybe if you do this, then I'll do this. Right? He, he says, these are my terms. This is what I will do. This is what I have done. This is my promise. We enter into his covenant. He is the greater, the greater party. I know that when, uh, when we were making an offer on our house, we got to, to shop around with, with lenders. Who's going to give us the better deal? Who's going to look at our life situation? What, what agreement are we going to come to? Even when we put the offer on the house. It was, here's one offer. Well, here's a counteroffer. Well, what if you do this? Then we'll throw this in there. There's all the negotiating that comes in. That's, that's a contract, but it's not a covenant. Not a covenant that comes from the higher authority. There's no negotiating. We don't get to lay out terms when it comes with God. He gets to tell us how this is going to be. He sets the terms of the covenants. We can accept them or reject them, but we don't get to alter God's covenants. We don't get a say in how he changes them. So that's a covenant. The second term we'll hear a lot of is faith. And I think we need to, to clarify, make sure we're on the same page with faith. Because in our culture, faith is defined mostly as either a feeling or, or, or a mental assent. Like, oh, maybe I'll have faith in this, maybe I'll have faith in that, but I want to talk about a deeper meaning for faith. Um, I believe or I feel is what a lot of people will say. But what faith really means is faith is a complete trust or confidence in someone or something. A complete trust or confidence in someone or something. And we can see why having so much faith in something can falter. I think a lot of times a lot of people struggle with having faith in God is because they relate it to having faith in people. When someone breaks an agreement, someone breaks a promise, you lose faith in someone, you start translating that into your other relationships, right? We start saying, oh, well, such and such hurt me, so I don't know if I can do this. I hear this story all too commonly with churches. People saying, hey, you know, why don't you come check out my church? They go, I went to a church once. It broke me. I went to a church, got hurt. I lost faith in church. And then as we get to tell people, well, you may have lost faith in some people in the church, but don't lose your faith in the one who is in charge of the church. He's the one that will never let you down. A complete trust or confidence in someone or something. But going back to my opening story about how I met my wife, when we, when we established our, our dating relationship, she didn't want me to just believe in her. Stephanie, I have faith in you. I, I believe in you. I believe in us. She wanted me, as any person would in a relationship, to be loyal to her, to be faithful to her as we dated our marriage would not have lasted this long. And I know for some of you who are well above 14 years, that is awesome. I strive to to get to like 100 years married. I'm gonna live a long time. Gotta stop eating fast food. But I know that my marriage would never have lasted as long as it did now, as we're at, if I just thought good about her. Or if I just felt good about her. It goes beyond the feelings. It goes beyond the thoughts. Our marriage has thrived so long, uh, so far, because we we have a fidelity to each other. We have a faithfulness to each other. The fact that we both honor this covenant that we entered into and we don't waver from this covenant, that's why it's lasting. And I know for those of you who are married, um, the terms of your marriage are no different. You have this covenant that that relies on faith, that relies on trust, that relies on fidelity. And if if our marriage was based on feelings, we would be doomed. If any relationship is based solely on feelings, you will be doomed because feelings lead to behaviors Feelings rise and fall. It gives way to beliefs. Beliefs give way to behaviors. And over the long fall, relationships that thrive on trust and honor and in a covenant, if you're just riding on a feeling, it's not going to last. As a matter of fact, just recently, my wife and I were talking, and um, we were saying, she had, she had told me, she goes, man, I'm just, I just feel off today. I just feel off. 
And I, I could tell that, that it wasn't, you know, a, a normal fun evening where we're happy and laughing. There, there was something that was off, and we got to talk about what was, what was making her feel off. But if we relied just on those feelings, our marriage would end really quick. Because sometimes we can act out really, really badly on a really quick feeling. But over the long haul, relationships thrive on trust, honor, and that fidelity. And I think this is a lot to do, same, similar with our faith with God. God, I think, is far less concerned about our mood swings because he deals with seven and a half billion mood swings every day. I think God is less, less concerned with our mood swings. He's more concerned with our life of loyalty lived for him. Less concerned about the mood behind it, but the life of loyalty lived for him. Loyalty goes so far beyond moods. And if we understand this concept, and I, I think we can get it, then the story of the first major covenant in Scripture is going to make a lot of sense to us. Because someone could have had a major mood swing here, and it would have changed a lot of stuff. We're going to talk about Abraham, the father of our faith. Back in Genesis chapter 12, God makes this promise. Makes this promise to a man named Abraham. Now, Abraham living in Mesopotamia, God says this to him in Genesis 12 chapters 1 and 2. He says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Now, God's covenant with Abraham is starting to get established here. But he comes to this man and he says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And there are two conditions. Again, Abraham doesn't get to negotiate these conditions. This is what it is. Two requirements. One, leave your land. Land was a huge asset back then. You leave your land. Number two. You leave your family. That's a big ask. That is a huge, huge ask. Leave your land, leave your family. And your initial, your initial thought may be, what a crummy covenant. What, what does God think he's doing? Telling this guy, hey, I want to use you. Leave everything. Get out. It's like, why would you do that? But look at your land. Say goodbye. Look at your family, except your wife. She's coming with you. Say goodbye. They didn't have kids. It was just him and his wife as far as immediate family. But say goodbye. And as hard as that may seem, God also gave him two promises with this covenant. He said, when you leave your land and you leave your family, I have two promises. I'm going to give you bigger land and a larger family. This was the covenant, and Abraham pledged his allegiance to it. He said yes. Didn't get to negotiate, didn't get to say, well, what if I do this instead? Can I, can I take some of this with me? He said no. And on top of that, God didn't even tell him where he was going. At this point, it's like, hey, you're going to get up and you're going to start relocating. Where am I going? Doesn't matter. These are my terms. Get up and go. And Abraham does it. He gets up and goes. That's a lot of faith. But through his obedience, Abraham becomes the father of our faith. Sometimes we have to say goodbye to earthly things. We have to look at the, the things around us that we think mean everything and then relate those to God where we say, actually, in my relationship to God, that really doesn't mean everything. God means everything. And he may ask us to, to say some hard goodbyes to things so that we can trust him to execute his plan, which will always lead to bigger and better things according to the plan that he has for us. Not always easy, but always good, always better. Um, wasn't planning on talking about this, but this morning I was on Facebook and a memory popped up. Today marks exactly one year that was mine and Stephanie's last Sunday at Creekside in California. And it's just, when I read that post, it was just a flood of like emotions, like good emotions, like wow, it's been, it's been a year. You know, a year ago today we were on the stage and I was giving my last message to, to Creekside. This, this is the church that that I never in my wildest dreams thought I was going to leave. I thought I was a lifer. You know, not an inmate, but a lifer. I thought I was going to be there forever. This is the church that maybe one day I'm going to be in charge of. This, this, is, what, this is my plan. I'm going I'm to be here forever. And then I look at this and I was like, wow, what did God tell me to do? Leave my land and leave my family. Not my wife, she came. But, 
for both of us, our whole family lives down in the Bay Area. Everybody. And so we were literally leaving our land and leaving our family. Now, the difference is Abraham didn't know where he was going. We knew exactly where we were going. But we still had this call that God put on us. He said, hey, I have something for you. This is going to be bigger. This is going to be better. This is what I want for you in your life. And it was a huge step to go. Now, I look back at that, and it was, it was so hard to say goodbye. I, I tell people, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting feeling. I say, that was the hardest decision we ever made, but the easiest decision we ever made at the same time. We knew clearly what God had called us to do. I wouldn't change anything that I get to be here with you now. But at the same time, saying goodbye was hard. It was not an easy ask, but it was an easy decision to make, knowing that this was not my plan. This was God's plan. This was God's promise. Paul says this in Romans 4.3. He says, For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And if we skip down to verse 11 and 12, it says this. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who were not merely circumcised, but who also walked in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Hence, Abraham became the father of our faith. And I love that it's established in the Old Testament and it's brought forward in the New Testament, referred to as this is the man that started this journey for all of us. He is a spiritual father. He, he was literally the biological father of the Jews. Literally the biological father that comes down and you can trace the 12 tribes of Judah through his lineage. He is the spiritual father, therefore, of us also now as Christ followers and believers. The spiritual father, the father of our faith. He is also the father of Islam through his offspring Ishmael. And if you take Christianity and Islam, this makes Abraham the most single influential religious figure outside of Jesus in human history, claiming to nearly 50% of influence in religion. That's a huge, huge impact that this man has had through history. But it gets even better. Abraham has his covenant with God. But if we go through to the New Testament, we will see that Jesus fulfills Abraham's covenant. Jesus fulfills Abraham's covenant. Sticking with Genesis for a minute, we see something significant. In chapter 15, God asks Abraham to do something to, to ratify this covenant in a very significant way. Genesis 15, 9 says this. Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these cut them in half, and laid each over against each other, the other. Now, this may seem a bit frightening, right? You're going to bring me all these animals, you're going to cut them in half, and you're going to start laying them on each other. And, and this, this seems weird, right? But nonetheless, this was a common scene in the ancient time. This was a common way of solidifying a covenant. What we have here, this is the literal signing of a contract, not with a signature, but a signing of a contract with blood. This is the unbreakable covenant. This is what people would do. This signifies sacrifice. The idea is that the one agreeing to the contract would make a sacrifice, cut the animals in half, lay them side by side, and walk in between them. And when they did this, this is a way of them saying, if I break this covenant, may it be done to me what I did to these animals. Got real, right? May it be done to me as I did to these animals. So Abraham does this, and he, he cuts them in half, and God tells him to wait. So he's waiting there. The rest of the day, he's shooing birds of prey away. He's leaving his, his symbols right there. And when night fell, Abraham fell asleep. In the middle of the night, God shows up as this pillar of fire, and he passes between the two halves of the sacrifice. Now, this is really important, because notice what I said before. When you're making the covenant, the person that cut it would walk through and say, may, it be, may this happen to me if I break the covenant. Who walked through the sacrifice? God walked through the sacrifice. It wasn't Abraham. 
God came down and he did it. This was God himself saying, if you break this covenant, may it be done to me as you've done to these animals. Think of the significance of what God just said. If you break this, God, knowing that we're not perfect, he says, if you break this, may it be done to me as you have done to these animals. This is extreme. This is extreme, and it's ultimately foreshadowing to what God is going to do later. We see that God not only has, not, not only does Abraham have faith in God, but we see that God has faith in Abraham and an ultimate love for Abraham and what is going to happen with his creation. We see this concept repeated in Genesis in chapter 22. He makes a demand of Abraham that seems inconceivable. You may recall the story that Abraham, when he found out that he and his wife were going to have a child, they were in their late 90s. They were old. In their late 90s, childbearing time was over. But this is when they have a child. God finally gets Abraham the offspring he promised, and they name their son Isaac. Now, a few years later, we're not really sure exactly how old Isaac is when this story happens, but some scholars believe Isaac was a young teen, a young man, well capable of out-wrestling, out-running, out-maneuvering, giving his dad a stiff arm if he wanted to at this point. But God asks Abraham to do something, which is, for us, would be an outrageous request. God asks Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And like I said, Isaac probably at some point, when he realizes when they're walking up there, and there's no animal to sacrifice, and Abraham's kind of looking at him holding this rope and this knife, at some point the light had to go on, like, all right, my dad's going to kill me. But Isaac also doesn't run away from his dad. Isaac doesn't put up the fight. He is trusting God in this as well. Now, personally, there are times where I think, God, what child am I getting rid of today? (laughs) What one is it going to be? God, test me like you did Abraham. Seriously, I've never had that thought. But, you know, there's, there's these moments where you wonder, where, where was this faith, where, what was Abraham thinking when he was going up? Because the Bible says that he goes for it, and he does it, and he goes up with the intent of sacrificing his son. Abraham assumed that God demanded the sacrifice, and we don't know this until Hebrews 11, but we find out that Abraham actually assumed that God was going to raise Isaac from the dead. And this was a thought purely based on faith. There had been no resurrection of death yet in Scripture at this point. But in Hebrews 11, it says this, Abraham considered that God was able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So we find out in Hebrews that Abraham had this this amazing faith thought that if I sacrifice my son, God's going to bring him back. This is the promise God gave me. But remember, there had been no raising of dead yet. This was a foreign concept. So this was pure faith that Abraham had, that even though God had asked him to do something extraordinary, God was going to hold to his covenant. God was going to keep his promise. To you and me, this may seem like a horribly inappropriate test, right? This is a test to the extreme. And if it wasn't for scripture and how it plays out, maybe we wouldn't really understand God's intention behind this. But, but we know how, the, maybe most of us know how the story ends. Abraham lays his son on the stone altar. He binds him up and he has the wood to burn and his body is on the platform. And Abraham raises his knife. But an instant before he goes through with it and he is going to do it, he hears the voice, stop. An angel stops him. I can't imagine the relief of Abraham right there. It's like, oh, thank you, God, literally, thank you. And an angel says, sacrifice the ram instead. There's a ram caught in the thicket. And I hope today God sacrifices the rams to the 49ers so bad. <laughs> so bad. There it is. But God says, do the ram instead. And he sees Abraham's faith. 
we can't comprehend what's going on here until we really fast forward now to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, on another hill, on another day, there's another son to be slain. But this time, the lamb in the thicket and the son to be slain is the same person. The same person. They're one and the same. God was using Abraham to point out that he would make good on his promise between these two halves of the sacrifice. God himself was going to pay the price for the broken covenant. The fact that we've fallen short, the fact that we messed up, God said, I walked through those, I walked through those bodies. I'm going to live up to that now. I'm paying that price for this broken covenant. And God, Jesus himself, paid that. When we look at this, Genesis 15, Genesis 22, Matthew 26, these are all chapters of the same story. All chapters of the same story. So let's revisit our core question. How can I be a part of what God is doing in the world? How can I be a part of this? Don't, I ask people, don't you want to be? I, I, I love the fact that I get to be a part of what God is doing, a part of this bigger picture. And, and that only happens, it always happens through fidelity with God's word, through fidelity in this covenant that God provided through Jesus. The covenant of Abraham was fulfilled with Jesus, and so too is every other covenant that we see in Scripture. And we're going we're gonna to fly through some of these covenants. I'm not going to, I don't have time to elaborate on every single one of them. But there are, there's five major covenants in Scripture, and then there are many other covenants that God makes. One of the covenants God makes is with Adam. God made this covenant with Adam. He said, we're going to walk in the cool of day as long as you don't break loyalty. Don't eat from that tree of knowledge of good and evil. God said, we're going to walk together as long as you don't do this. But what do we do? Right? Our ancestral forefathers, right? Adam and Eve, they ate free, freely from the fruit. They, in that moment, they, they rebelled against what God had best for them, and they were the ones that stepped out of that covenant. Yet it was Jesus dying on the cross who paid the ultimate price for that first sin and all sin that followed after. Through Jesus, we regain that relationship. We regain that ability to say, God is with me walking everywhere I walk. Jesus fulfilled their covenant. God made a covenant with Noah to save his family from the flood by following God's command to build a boat. Who would have thought that you would get saved by building a boat? I'm glad God's never asked me to build anything because I can't build. But God goes to Noah, says, build the boat. Now this is compared with, uh, with the apostle Peter to Christian baptism. He talks about how God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In and only few people, eight and all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you. Not the removal of dirt but the body from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. First Peter starts talking about how, how this, this symbolism of water in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, it wasn't a symbol. It was real water. Wiped out the world. But today, we get to use water to symbolize the wiping out of our sins. When God wiped out wickedness, we get to use water today to say, this is what Jesus did. Jesus was baptized. We get to follow his example. He fulfilled this covenant where water is going to save. And water is a part of how we express our decision to follow Christ. The covenant he made with Moses was a national legal system. It was summarized in the Ten Commandments. In children's ministry, we called them the Big Ten. It was a lot of fun going through the Ten Commandments. But it, was, it, gave, God's, it gave God's nation both liberty and limitation to protect them from their own simple bent. It be, soon became clear that after, uh, after this, rules had come out that a relationship was needed. It went far beyond just written down rules. A relationship was needed. If you had rules without a relationship, it led to rebellion. And we see that in scripture over and over and over. People rebelling and people thinking they can do things on their own. God's people needed more than a law. More than a written law. They needed love demonstrated. 
They needed to see it walked out. They needed to see the, these rules and guidelines lived in a way that showed how they were really structured. It wasn't a, a list of do not, do not, do not. It really was a, this is what I want for you. This is how you can show me love. This is how you can show people love. And Jesus got to walk that out with people. He got to fulfill the covenant with Moses and the commandments. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He fulfilled all these laws. Paul says it this in Colossians 2, 13 and 14. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. The covenant with David, after this, he had a covenant with David. This was the, the promise that a seed from his line would always rule, would always be on the throne over Israel. 2 Samuel 7, we see this written out. It says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house in my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, if you follow through the life of David and what happened with his family, there was a lot of turmoil. There was a lot of fighting. And it became clear through the lineage of David, it was not his literal kids in that moment that were going to carry on the throne. It wasn't going to be Solomon or Rehoboam. It wasn't going to be any of the other ancient kings. Rather, his lineage was fulfilled through Jesus. Someone from the house in the line of David came to be the final, ultimate king for all. The angel Gabriel promised Mary just before her conception that her son would fulfill the prophecy. Luke 1.32, he says this, he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. I love that when we see, when we see scriptures, when we see these covenants that God promises with all these people, when Jesus comes, he fulfills every single one of them. He is the keeper of these covenants. The bottom line is this, Jesus fulfilled every previous covenant. His blood, his sacrifice, that is God walking through the animals, saying, may it be done to me. If you mess up, he is God in the flesh fulfilling this. He paid the price. If we want to be a part of what God is doing today, it requires faith. Not just the faith of Abraham to believe in God. Not just the, the faith to say, I know who he is, but the faith to obey his call. Maybe to, to, to leave certain things of your life behind. For Abraham, it was to leave family, to, to, leave, to leave land, to, to go somewhere unknown. But when he did it, he saw God working through it. I think God gives us little things like that all throughout our walk with him. Little, little things. And for all of us, it could be different things. But what are, what are you going to give up? What is God saying? I need you to step away from this. I need you to step aside from this because I have something so much better. And I want you to not look at that for a minute. Look at me instead. I've got something for you. If we want to be a part of what God is doing, we've got to be able to turn our focus and look at him and not look at some of the things that are distracting us. <clears throat> Abraham decided not just to believe God, but to obey his call to leave his family, to believe that God was going to provide him a bigger land, a greater inheritance. The faith of Noah against all reason to build a boat simply because God said build the boat. The faith of Moses to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, leading rebellious people with nothing but two tablets of stone, with 10 commandments. The faith of David to run to God after, in, in repentance after his sin, after he had committed adultery and had a man murdered, to go to God and with broken and say, God, I still love you. I want to follow you. I'm sorry for what I've done. To run to God in repentance and know that after a man being after God's own heart is not about the heart you have, but it's the heart that you're after. 
David knew it wasn't about his heart. It was the heart he was after when he was following God. So let me ask you this question before we uh, close up today. If your faith were evaluated in the same way you measured your marriage, if your faith in God, this covenant you have with God, were the same way as you evaluated your marriage, would you say you were single, you were separated, divorced, or married? Ask yourself that question. How would your faith look like if you measured it with a covenant in God? Single, separated, divorced, and married. And wherever you fall on that line, don't look at that and go, oh man, I'd be divorced. This is over. This is bad. No. Remember, God doesn't look at these things as a, now it's over. God looks at this as, this is the redemption story. This is the come back to me story. This is the I love you no matter what story. This is the covenant that he will never break story. I'd like to invite the worship team back up. And I invite you all to stand with me today. I believe, I truly believe, every relationship, every single relationship, husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, parent, child, has room for improvement. So I would challenge you this week. I would say, what can we do this week? What can we do this week? What's one thing in our agenda we can change that would align us with God's agenda for our lives? What's one thing in our life we can change and say, you know what, God, here's my agenda. I really think this is your agenda. How can I look at your covenant? How can I look at your word and say, you know what, if I go this way, I'm really focused on my own covenants with myself. But if I look this way, I'm looking at your covenant, the one that you establish in your kingdom, the one that Jesus fulfilled that will never break. Evaluate where you are with God. Identify one area of your life to go along with that. Maybe it's finances, priorities, your schedule, habits, relationships, where can you align yourself in a more intentional way that says, God, the covenant you've made with me is the most important thing. The most important thing. He walked between the animals for us. He literally said, you broke this, but you're not paying for it. I'm paying for it. I already paid for it. Let's embrace that covenant today. Let's know that our beginning, who we are, who we were meant to be, a lot of it can be summed up with we were meant to be with him forever. Amen. God, I thank you for today. God, I thank you that, that your covenant is unbreakable. I thank you that what you established in the Old Testament, you carried through to the new, that Jesus paid that price. He walked through the animals. He walked through that blood and said, I will do this for you because I love you so much. I thank you that his word is never breaking. His promises never fail. His mercies are new every day. And God, I ask that, that this week we, we, we start evaluating that in our lives and making changes that lead us to that really understanding that deeper covenant we have with you. We trust you, we follow you, we love you, and we know that when we mess up, you already paid that price and we get to start over every day with you, God. So God, I thank you that you love us so much and that we get the privilege of loving you too. We thank you, we love you, and everybody said, amen. amen.